Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Badass Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Fox. I'm going to start off by getting right into today's pitches. Our first one comes from Inga. Dark Roads meets Invisible Girl. When an abandoned baby is found in a park, the truth of her heritage will untangle a teenager's disappearance and push one family's carefully constructed world to the brink of collapse. And then the hashtags follow. So let's start with the comps. These are recent comps from well-known authors in the thriller genre, so that is fantastic. For me, the hook is the abandoned baby found in a park. I'm a mom. I have five kids. This immediately speaks to me. I want to know all kinds of things. Who's the baby? Why has she been abandoned? What happened to the mother? What are the secrets the trail behind her? So I'm immediately hooked into reading more right from the first part of the pitch. The rest of the pitch tells me the baby is connected to the disappearance of a teenager. So then the story immediately becomes more enticing for me. There's a lot here to make me want to read more about the story. What I'd like to find out more about is what's at stake here for the family. The family obviously has secrets. Are these secrets tied to the teen's disappearance? Is the teen dead? Is she runaway? What's her story? What does this mean for the baby? So obviously not all of these questions can be answered in the pitch, and that's not the point. The point is, when I look at this pitch, it's doing all the right things. It's making me want to find out more, and that's the entire point of a pitch. What I think you can do here is push up that tension by telling us what's at stake for the baby, for the teen, and or the family. So instead of telling us what's going to happen, give us enough tidbits of information to make us wonder about what's going to happen. It seems to me that the family is hiding something, so maybe focus on what's at stake for them. What will happen if the authorities find out the truth behind the teen's disappearance? What will happen to the baby and or the missing teen if the family doesn't confess or take responsibility in some way? So these are the things that are going through my head as I'm reading. So you might try something like this. An abandoned baby found in a park is about to unravel the family of a missing teen. Now, keeping the grisly truth behind the disappearance risks uprooting their carefully constructed world, but exposing the secret will destroy it. So if you can hint at what's going to happen if their secret is exposed and what can happen if the truth stays hidden, this will put mega tension on the characters and into the pitch. The more impossible the stakes, the higher the tension, and with a good hook like an abandoned baby and missing teenager, it's sure to garner some agent and publisher likes. Our next pitch comes from KC. Angels are being slaughtered. It's up to Lucifer to avenge them, but Heaven's most beloved archangel finds himself in unfamiliar territory, temptation. Will Lucifer remain the good son or commit the one unredeemable sin? Hashtags follow, but they're sort of in the form of hashtag comp meets hashtag comp. So what you want to do with your hashtags is make sure that they pertain to the pitching event that you're participating in. Um, So most of them will have some sort of guidelines where you can check to make sure what hashtags you should be using according to the pitch event and the genre, etc. With your comps, if these are the comps that you're going to use, such as Lucifer meets Clash of the Titans, you want to put those front and top so that they're the first thing that the agent sees because it gives the agent and the publisher an immediate sense of what they're going to get with this story. 
So in the pitch, we start with an inciting incident, the thing that's going to lead our main character on this journey. We're introduced to Lucifer as heaven's most beloved archangel, and he is to avenge the death of the angels that are being slaughtered. But along his journey, he's tempted to... what? What is the thing that tempts him so much he risks getting banned from heaven? I'm not religious myself, so I did a little bit of research so I could fully understand more about Lucifer and the unredeemable sin. So for other readers who also don't know, we need more in the pitch to help us understand what the story is about. Remember, in a pitch, we need to see the main character, an inciting incident, goals, conflict, and stakes. What happens to Lucifer that gets him into this sticky situation? What specifically must he choose between? The more threatening the stakes are in either choice, the higher the tension will be here. So let's try something like this. Lucifer meets Clash of the Titans. Archangel Lucifer must avenge slaughtered angels' deaths, but it exposes an unfamiliar evil. Temptation. Resisting the wicked urge for power is impossible, but committing the unredeemable sin means being banned from heaven forever. So in this way, you're presenting the reader with the choice that Lucifer must make and what will happen in either scenario. Both are obviously horrible options, which makes the tension high and draws the reader in. And you want to try and use words that um, relate to the, the themes or the tone, so such as wicked and evil. Thank you, Inga and Casey, for submitting your pitches. I hope this critique helps you polish them, and I wish you good luck in getting some agent and publisher interest. For writers interested in submitting your pitch for critique on the show, please see my pinned tweet at underscore badass writers, or visit my website at kathleenfox.com slash badass writers underscore podcast. Information about our upcoming Mood Pitch event can be found at moodpitch.org. Today's interview will feature lots of information about the king of horror, Stephen King, as well as some writing tips and fascinating info about the thriller and horror genres. I'll be talking to a Canadian author who's living in the U.S. and who's a member of Crime Writers of Canada. He's one of several international members that I'll be featuring in the coming months. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to highlight something that gets brought up, and that is the topic of writing the story that you want to write. With the invention of social media, we can more clearly see trends that are happening in the literary world. We see trends in genres, in tropes, in location, time period. If you read a lot of books or pay attention to what's happening in the market, you'll be able to spot these trends a mile away. Often, writers will be inspired by all these books about vampires or all these cute coming-of-age rom-coms or all these post-apocalyptic dystopian settings. A spark will turn into flame, and all of a sudden you've got this great outline, and off you go. You start drafting. You want to be one of those authors, you want to get in on the action. And there's nothing wrong with that, because if you're inspired to tell a story, that's great. You should tell it. The problem with this is, by the time you finish writing the novel and preparing it for querying, the market has become oversaturated with these types of stories. So this doesn't always happen, but it can and it does. And if it happens to you, it makes your writing journey that much more difficult. So instead of writing according to what's going on in the publishing world, just write the story that speaks to you at that time. No matter what genre it is or what tropes it contains, don't write for the trends. Don't follow the trends as a writer. Follow them as a reader, that's great, but not as a writer. So 
when you've finished writing your story and it's ready for querying or submitting to a publisher, there may be a new trend on the horizon that your book fits perfectly into. And if it doesn't sell or you missed the boat, don't get rid of the story. Trends fluctuate. So just because something isn't popular right now doesn't mean it won't become popular again later. So just write the story because you never know what's going to happen in the market or when. Today's guest is Bev Vincent. He's the author of The Dark Tower Companion, The Road to the Dark Tower, the Bram Stoker Award-nominated companion to Stephen King's Dark Tower series, and the Stephen King Illustrated Companion, which was nominated for a 2010 Edgar Award and a 2009 Bram Stoker Award. In 2018, he co-edited the, the anthology Flight or Fright with Stephen King. His short fiction has appeared in places such as Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine, Borderlands 5, Ice Cold, and The Blue Religion. He has been a contributing editor with Cemetery Dance Magazine since 2001 and is a former member of the Storytellers Unplugged blogging community. He also writes book reviews for Onyx Reviews and has served as a judge for the Al Blanchard, Shirley Jackson, and Edgar Awards. So welcome to the show, Bev, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me on. First of all, congratulations on the release of your newest book, The Stephen King Ultimate Companion, A Complete Exploration of His Work, Life, and Influences. For our listeners, it was just launched into the world last week, so if you're a fan of The King of Horror, definitely go pick up a copy if you haven't already. So in writing a biography of Stephen King, you must obviously know a lot about him. Can you tell our listeners how and why you decided to write this book and what it's like to write about another real person's life and works as opposed to a character that you've made up? About 2008, I was approached by a publisher who was commissioned by the uh, American bookstore chain Barnes & Noble to create a reader's companion. Um, they had a series, they had done one on Poe, one on Jane Austen, and they wanted to do one on King. And this publisher contacted me to write this because of a previous book uh, called The Road to the Dark Tower. And so that book came out in about 2010, I guess. And it was not meant to be an exhaustive look. It was just sort of uh, the highlights. So I was limited to maybe eight or 10 of King's works that I did deep dives into. And, uh, and unfortunately, that book was limited to only Barnes & Noble stores. So it didn't get as wide a distribution as it, as it could have done, but it was really popular at the time. And since then, I've gone back to the publisher a couple of times and said, you know, there's updates you know things have gone on so can we add a, a chapter and we did that once but last year when i went back to them i found out that the publisher had been bought by the quarto group which is a much larger multinational publishing uh company and they said you know instead of doing just like putting another chapter in the end let's do a big expanded edition of this and so that gave me the room to go back and look at everything that King has done from his juvenilia, you know, some of the things that he wrote when he was uh, you know, a teenager, all the way through to the most recent book, uh, Fairy Tale, which came out a couple of weeks ago. And you know, I've written about King's work quite a bit uh, over the last 20 years. I have this column for Cemetery Dance called News from the Dead Zone. So I have amassed a whole filing cabinet full of uh, articles and interviews, a lot of which I've digitized. So I had a lot of resources that I could go back to to write about um, his work. And, you know, the title is 
his work, life, and influences. And for me, that's the right order because I'm not so interested in straight biography. Um, that's been done by other people and it, it tends to get into stuff that really is not relevant to what I'm interested in. Work comes first. Where the biography comes in is I'm interested in what was going on in his life when he was working on a particular book. What incident or experience inspired it? Because quite often you can look at his books and say that came out of something specific that happened to him. Um, he and his wife spent a, a weekend at a hotel in a remote Colorado town where they were the only people there that night and that inspired The Shining. So things like that, those sort of biographical things interest me much more than, you know, sort of the mundane day-to-day -day stuff that sometimes biographies get into. Right. Yeah, I can definitely agree that that's that part of a, a person's biography. It's definitely what is most interesting as it pertains to the the work that they've done. And I recently read an article in The Big Thrill, which for our listeners is a magazine created by the International Thriller Writers Organization. And in that article, Stephen King interviews you. And there's a photo of the two of you together. And like you said, you've written other works about Stephen and his work. Um, and you co-edited the anthology Flight or Fright with him. He's such an icon in the literary world of horror, and what an honor it must be to get to know him personally and become an expert on his life, in a sense. So how many opportunities have you had to work with Stephen himself, and how did he help in the creation of this latest book? So that photograph that's on the cover of The Big Thrill, that was taken the night that he came up with the idea for the anthology Flight or Fright. Okay. Um, it was a, a group of people who had gone to Bangor for the uh, world premiere of the movie adaptation of The Dark Tower, and he hosted a dinner beforehand. And all the people who had come in from all over the country had stories about you know, the travel woes and getting to Bangor. And as he worked his way around the room, he came up with this idea for that anthology and he pitched it to uh, Richard Chismar from Cemetery Dance. He said, you, you can publish it. And then I just happened to be sitting next to Richard and he said, and I'll need some help finding some of the stories and that can be your job. So that, that photograph uh, means a lot to me. Yeah. I've gotten to talk to him a number of times, quite a few times over the years, and we're in fairly regular contact these days by email talking about you know books and uh, TV series and movies that we're recommending to each other. In terms of this book, he wasn't involved at all, I would say, specifically. The people who work in his office, um, who manage his uh, literary archives, we uh, got in touch with them to get some documents and photographs. But it probably would feel a little bit awkward for somebody to be involved in something that's about you. Um, and so I didn't address the, this to him at all directly. I mean, he knew it was happening, but he was sort of hands off on it. I would say the extent of his involvement was um, the week before the book came out, he retweeted one of my tweets about the book, which, of course, made it much more visible in the right. eyes of his millions of followers as opposed to my few thousands. <laughs> and then there was the, and then there was the interview. And you know, the big thrill um, from the International Thriller Writers is really, really supportive of its members. And they do this magazine every month that promotes whatever new books are coming out from its memberships. And so they were going to cover the new Stephen King uh, book that I did. But the managing editor got back to me and said, we had one time before where there was a Lee Child biographer. And for that issue, we had Lee Child interview the biographer. And wouldn't it be cool if we could get Stephen King to interview you? Oh, okay. And I thought, yeah, cool. I don't know how I 
you know, it seems a little bit weird to ask that question. <laughs> um, I have interviewed King a few times, and on one occasion, we interviewed each other by phone for the audiobook of Flight or Fright. But I was a little bit nervous about, you know, I said, I've asked if you would do this, you know, I'm just passing it on. I'm, you know, I'm just the messenger. But he immediately agreed to do so. He got back to me with the next day. Um, he asked some very nice, open ended questions that let me delve into things that, you know, don't normally come up in, in, in an interview. Um, so yeah, that turned out to be a really nice promotion for the book. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I would be nervous too. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> oh my goodness. In the Big Thrill article, there is a photo of a letter that you received from Stephen in 1982. You had written to him to let him know how much you loved Salem's Lot and his other books, um, which obviously weren't too many back then. And Salem's Lot was my first Stephen King read as well. And I remember being just absolutely immersed in it. I loved it. I, however, did not <laughs> write him a letter to tell him about it because at the time, I mean, I didn't even know you could do something like that. To me, Stephen was and still is this huge celebrity author. And, and you know, I was just one of several hundred thousand fans at that time. Um, so I imagine you must have been pretty stoked to get that letter from him. Can you tell us about that? And can you tell us about the first time you met him and talked with him in person? And what was that like for you? I think the fact that I wrote a letter is an indication of how how much I really got into his work. Um, I picked up a copy of Salem's Lot at a little secondhand bookstore in Halifax, where I was in university. At the time, I wasn't reading much horror. I just picked it up on a whim that day and immediately was so enthralled by it that I had to read everything else that he'd written up to that point, which you're right, in 79 was only a handful of books. Right. Um, and and he he quickly became the first author who I ever purchased in hardcover, which as a university undergrad at the time was a you know it's a bit of an expense. But yeah, so I wrote him this letter. Um, I don't really remember the details of what I wrote, but th these postcards that the, like the one that's um, reproduced in the big thrill that was his sort of standard way of responding to people. But he also sent along or had his uh, office staff send along uh, another envelope that had. Essentially, um, a list of all of his publications up to that point, including, you know, where to find short stories that hadn't been collected and interviews and things like that. And I carried that around in my wallet with me for a long time while I tried to track down all this early material that I still hadn't been able to, to read yet. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. The, the first time I met him, well, I, other than a, a brief encounter at a book signing in Houston in 87, where he was touring with uh, a guy named Don Robertson. Uh, King had published one of Don Robertson's novels through his Filtrum publishing house, and he was touring with Robertson to promote uh, that book because Robertson had meant a lot to him you know, as a young man. He was an influence on King's work, and so he sort of paid Robertson back by you know, publishing one of his books and touring with him. But in uh, 1997, uh, my wife and I were traveling back to my family home in New Brunswick, and we had a stopover in Bangor. And at that time, I was a email pen pal with Tabitha King. We had sort of met through the the early internet, and uh, she'd said, "Well, you know, if, if you have time, you know, let me know that you're you're here. Maybe we can, you know, go out and have a cup of coffee or something like that." Which is how I pictured that was going to happen. Right. But when we got to the hotel, there was a le uh, a message at the desk waiting and said, "You know, Tabitha King says give her a call." And so we did, and she invited us over to the house, the, oh, okay. the very iconic house on uh, on Broadway in Bangor. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so my wife and I got to spend the evening um, hanging out in the house. Wow. Um, with Tabitha, and then Steve came in a little bit later, and then their two sons, Joe and Owen, were you know coming around and talking to us. They took us out uh, to his office, which was out by the Bangor Airport, where we saw all sorts of cool stuff. You know, he had you know, all these limited editions, of course, and all of the things that fans had given him over the years and artwork. And there was this big room at the back that had a big table that had all of his foreign editions. Okay. And we sort of had fun going around looking at these, you know, Cyrillic language covers or, you know, German or something like that, trying to guess what book is this? Yeah. Um, so uh, it was it was just a cool evening. They, they were just so relatable. They were listening to a, a main university a basketball game on the radio and we stopped and picked up a loaf of bread at the convenience store and just goes to show how, you know, normal their life could be you know right. and he's not out doing the big promotional stuff yeah oh that sounds fascinating so is salem's lot your favorite since it was your first or do you have another favorite of his books yeah i have a hard time with favorites it's, it's, I, I have a defective favorite regime because i have a hard time ranking <laughs> things but me too <laughs> I, I always pick up salem's lot because it's well, as you say it was the first and it was the my gateway drug uh to king's work but, you know, he, he has so many books, I could pick a different favorite one every week of the year and still have a few to spare. But I often, uh, you know, The Shining is a, probably one of the books that will outlive him for centuries. You know, it's it's got that kind of literary horror perfection, I think. Um, the Stand and It, his two big early books, uh, are popular favorites. One that I particularly like is uh, one of it, it was his first one with Scribner um, called Bag of Bones. I don't know, I, I just connected with that one, uh, and I often think of it when people ask me what a favorite is. Wonderful. What is it, do you think, about his work in particular that inspired you so much as opposed to some other writers that you admire? Because everybody has their own kind of writing style. So can you pinpoint anything about his style that really draws you in? I think there's two aspects to it. Um, one is he just seems to be a natural storyteller. Stories just roll out of him. And they're good, compelling stories, you know, extremely well constructed. How many? He's got like 200 and some short stories, 60 some novels. And he's just, over the course of about 50 years, he's just been telling us stories and really, really good stories. But even more than that, he creates characters that we grow to love and admire, and we remember them long after the book is finished. And I, I don't know that there are many other writers, in my experience, where I can look at a particular book on the shelf and say, oh yeah, I remember who those characters were, and I remember so much about them. But with King, you know, if you showed me any book, I could give you even like the secondary and tertiary characters and, you know, what was interesting about them and it's it's just this facility with characterization. I think it's the fundamental thing that really attracts us. Right. Yeah. The characters. I mean, if you can't connect with the characters on some level, then it's kind of, you're not going to connect with the story at all. I think, I think the the characters and what they go through and their emotions and how they connect emotionally with the reader. I think that is at the root of a really good story. With his new novel, uh, which is just out fairy tale, it's uh, another fantasy adventure, you know, in the same vein as the, the Talisman. But we spend almost 200 pages with the main character before he goes off on this adventure. And we really get to know 
everything about him. He's a 17-year-old boy, and he, you know, he falls into this set of circumstances eventually. But we know so much about him that we're really invested in his journey once he sets out on it, as opposed to if you know he'd just fallen down the rabbit hole in page six. It would have been a completely different story because we'd be trying to get to know him as things went along. And, you know, that that works in some cases, but I think in, in fairy tale, it really helps that we're so invested in his journey before he even starts out. Yeah, absolutely. And there's not a lot of authors that can really pull that off to spend so mm-hmm. long with the main character right before they get into everything else that happens. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So fans will probably already know this, but I just uh, wanted to point out to the listeners that it is Stephen's 75th birthday tomorrow, September 21st. So your book release all about him is very timely. Was that planned in advance or did it just kind of fall into place? It was planned to an extent. Sometimes when you pitch a book to an editor and they like it, they have to sell the book internally at the publishing house. And one of the questions that the the editor of this book knew she was going to come up against was, you know, why now? You know, what's why why would we want to do this book now? And when I said, well, you know, next year is his 75th birthday, that was the the key to being able to sell it to the sales team and everybody else in the house of the publisher. Right. Um, the book was finished uh, essentially last October or November. Um, there was some layout stuff that went on after that, but so it could have been published earlier. But uh, getting it out in September, you know, in time for his birthday, that that gives it the hook then for people too. You know, right. this is oh, oh 75. and yeah, and, and that had happened once before with my first book, The Road to the Dark Tower. We timed that one, the publication of that one, so that it came out a month after the final Dark Tower series was published. So people have been reading this series for however long the game finished. Oh, here's a book all about it right on the shelf next to it. So sometimes those things, you know, there's marketing strategies too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the timing worked out very well then. (laughs) Um, It did. So in addition to several fiction and nonfiction books, you write short stories and nonfiction for several literary magazines. So what do you enjoy writing best, the fiction or the nonfiction? I usually like to have at least two projects going on at the same time so that if you know things aren't going so well with one, you can jump over to another for a while. Nonfiction, I think, is probably basically easier for me. I have a scientific background. I, you know, I studied science at Dalhousie University. I know how to research and dig into things, get all the details. And once you have the details, you know, the work can just sort of roll out from that. There, you never really hit a, a, a block with, uh, or at least I don't, with a nonfiction piece because there's always, you can always jump ahead a bit and write some more and jump around and do things like that. Where with fiction, it's all down to inspiration. And sometimes inspiration isn't as cooperative as you'd like. And no amount of research is going to help that process. And so if I'm writing a short story or a novella, and I just get to a point where I just need to recharge those creative batteries. If I have something nonfiction going on, I can jump to that and feel like it because I have limited writing time. I have a day job. So I've got only like this window of time in the morning. If I've got the nonfiction piece, I can go off and work on that and feel like I've made good use of my limited writing time. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I love to do research myself. I've always loved to learn whatever whatever I possibly can about whatever the topic may be. And I do a lot of research for my fiction. But you're right, there is that inspiration aspect. And 
it doesn't matter how much you know about what it is you're writing about, you still need to have that, you know, your creativity still has to be flowing in order to kind of get in the zone with the writing. But I do, I do enjoy that research aspect for sure. Can you name the single best thing or, or that's kind of like picking favorites. Um, can you name something um, memorable that you did early on in your writing career that really catapulted you into it? I would say there's two things. I wrote some when I was in university, but I never did anything with it. I just wrote short stories and read them to my friends in, in the residence. But late in the last millennium, I got fired up about writing again. And one of the problems I had was that I I had a laptop, but I didn't have a dedicated writing place. And so anytime I wanted to write, I had to pull out the laptop and clear things out and get my papers and that all set up. And there was a what we call in chemistry an activation barrier. Sometimes it was just like, oh, that's just too much work. I'll just skip it. And so for Christmas in 1999, I asked my wife for a place to work, a place to write. And she got me a roll top desk which was the perfect solution because I'm a pretty messy writer. I've got paper spread all over the place and I could have my laptop there. And at the end of the day, just roll the top down and hide all the mess. Yeah. <laughs> and so that really kickstarted things. But in terms of, you know, how I got to where I am now, I would say the best thing that I did was I accepted Richard Chismar's offer to work on, uh, to write an, a column for Cemetery Dance Magazine. For many reasons, but I can draw a straight line because I so first of all, it got my name out there. People read the magazine, even King read the magazine. So he knew who I was and he knew what sort of how I sort of approach things. And so when I came up with the idea for the road to the Dark Tower, I pitched that to King's office saying, you know, if you hate this idea, but this is what I'd like to do. And King agreed to it. And he actually gave me the manuscripts for the last three Dark Tower books before they were published. Two years before they were published, which was a great, you know, show of faith in in, in me as a writer. So I, that helped. But having the cemetery dance columns helped me get the contract with the publisher because there was, you know, good examples of my writing style. And then the Road to the Dark Tower led to the Stephen King Companion, and then that leads to where I am today. So there's really a a through line from starting to write news from the dead zone for cemetery dance. Yeah, a wonderful opportunity. Um, and I'm always talking about, you know, never, never close the doors on any opportunity and, you know, you never know where it's going to lead to. So that's mm -hmm. absolutely fantastic. Um, and just going back to the roll top desk that you just reminded me, my, <laughs> my dad built a roll top desk when I was very small, oh. very, a very small child. And, uh, when my brother and I were growing up in the house, the desk was always messy, <laughs> you know, and then we had to do our chores and whatever, and we would just kind of slide everything over there and roll it down. So then it looked nice and presentable. <laughs> so I get it. <laughs> yeah. I've sort of defeated the purpose of it because, yeah. uh, probably about 15 years ago, I became a standing writer. And oh, okay. so I have this thing on my desk, they call, it's called the kangaroo. So it, you, it goes up and down. You can sit yeah. and stand. And uh, so the roll top no longer rolls. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, still nice to have, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I have my own office now, so I can be as messy as I want. Nice. Well, the <laughs> there you go. Um, so you were born and raised in eastern Canada. You lived in New Brunswick mm -hmm. and Nova Scotia before moving to the U.S. You maintain your membership with Crime Writers of Canada. And like we've mm -hmm. said, you've, you're also a member of the International Thriller Writers. So first of all, how do you maintain that connection to the Canadian market? Is that something that Crime Writers of Canada helps with? How has being a part of these organizations helped your writing career? 
And I've, I've lived in the United States for over 30 years, but and I, I've taken American citizenship, but I'm still a Canadian as well, and I still feel Canadian. Um, as soon as you started talking at the beginning of this interview, I heard that oh so familiar and oh so welcome accent, yeah. which, which I think you know people still pick up on me a bit, but maybe it's gotten smoothed out a little bit over the last 30 years. So yeah, becoming a member of the Crime Writers of Canada, I mean, that's a fairly recent thing for me because I've really adopted crime writing as my main effort in fiction in the past half dozen years or so. Previous to that, people sort of knew me as a, a horror writer. So yeah, I, I wanted to become part of that Canadian community of crime writers. Organizations serve a, a variety of purposes. Like the International Thriller Writers is all about promotion. They are big guns promotion. They send out you know, uh, emails to 30,000 people at a time. They have this massive convention in New York every year. They've got big gun writers, uh, you know, names everybody would recognize on the executive board. David Morell, who is Canadian, guy who created Rambo, was one of the founding members. And so, yeah, if you want somebody, you know, to promote marketing and promoting your work, which is a hard job for a writer, typically. So they're they're great for that. Other organizations have different benefits. Sometimes it's a matter of community. Um, writing's a pretty lonely business, and it helps to have a place to go to find other people who are going through the same thing that you are, to get advice, just to commiserate, right. yeah. to share your news with, to share your rejections with, all of that. Other ones, like uh, I'm also a member of the Mystery Writers. Um, in th- a lot of these organizations have members-only projects. So like the the recent cold Canadian crime anthology. So there's opportunities for getting your works into different places that you wouldn't have outside the membership. And mystery writers and horror writers now have just, um, in the past couple of years, hooked up with um, collective health insurance, which in the United States is a big deal. There were lots of writers who went for years and years with minimal or no health insurance at all and so you know even a fairly trivial incident could be a a life changer but with the collective bargaining of larger organizations they've made that available now to uh, to memberships so there's that importance too there's also podcasts and webinar webinars and conferences uh things uh you know they're educational they're inspirational and they just get you in the feeling of community yeah, I recommend to to all writers to find some kind of organization, whether it's by genre or or whatever it is, um, something in your area, because you get those those opportunities to share with others, to learn from others, to help others as well. So I always uh, recommend that people find something that that it pertains to their writing and and join because it's never it's never a bad idea to do something like that. Do you have any projects on the go at the moment? I have two novels that I, I think are essentially finished. Um, one is a, a straight crime novel. The other one has some supernatural overtones um, that I'd really like to get in front of some editors. So I'm going to turn my attention to that for the, the next few months. I also have a novella. A fellow writer, a horror writer named Brian Keene and I did a book last year or the year before uh, called Dissonant Harmonies. And the the idea behind that one was that we've known each other for a long time and we've always talked about our musical interests. And we have a lot of overlap, but then we've got lots of places where our musical interests are quite different. 
And so we thought, wouldn't it be cool if we each made a playlist for the other person to listen to while we each wrote a novella? And so we did like a, like a CD's worth of music, and that's all we would listen to when we were working on that project. And so we published that first book, Dissonant Harmonies. My uh, story was called The Dead of Winter. And we've agreed we're going to do a, a second, uh, we're going to do a follow-up. And so we have exchanged our playlists, and now I'm sort of uh, cogitating and thinking about uh, maybe a follow-up story called The Dead of Night that I'd really like to maybe get finished by the end of the year. Nice. Yeah, I love, um, I see that often in the writing community where people have a playlist to either write to or so that readers can listen to it and it, it kind of helps, you know, mm-hmm. place the setting or the tone or anything or, you know, things like that. But uh, I, sometimes I can have music on in the background when I write, but it's, it usually has to have no lyrics because then I just get <laughs> way too distracted. <laughs> if, I, if I'm writing you know, first draft stuff, I can listen to anything. Yeah. Because I get it in a zone and entire albums can go by and I'll not have heard a word. But when I'm revising, then I have to be a little bit more selective, either mm-hmm. just instrumental or nothing at all, because the concentration types are different for those two processes. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. So our last question today is, do you have any advice for thriller and horror writers who are listening? Yeah, a couple of pieces of advice. One to, I guess, to writers in general, uh, sp- especially uh, beginning writers, and and that's to be patient. Um, there's there's sometimes such a burning desire to see your name in print that people uh, send out stories to markets that won't really do them much good. You know, nobody will see them beyond a handful of people, and and it's possible that that work could have been sold to a much broader audience to a, a bigger market. I have stories that I wrote in the 1980s and, you know, just put aside in a binder and I'm rediscovering them now. And I've been, I've sold them now, you know, 40 some years later. Um, I've had stories that have been rejected a dozen times, but I'm aiming at the high markets and I'm sort of finding them the sweet spot for that particular story. So just don't fall into the trap of giving your work away or underselling it. I guess that's, that's one. And the other one I would say is don't try to chase whatever current trend is going on. Um, you know, anybody who read all of the girl who did this or girl who did that books, by the time those books came out, if you saw, well, oh, there was a great opportunity, I'm going to write one of those. By the time you got that finished and in the publication, that trend has moved on. Yeah. So just sort of be true to whatever inspires you rather than trying to follow what the market is doing at the moment. Yeah, excellent advice. You know, genres will, there's ebbs and flows, right? They're going to come in, they're going to go out, and then they're they're going to come back at some point after there's been a time where there hasn't been a lot of that particular type of story written. So like you said, you have your stories that have been sitting around for decades. And now, you know, at some point, there might be a time for those stories. So not rushing mm-hmm. it and just kind of writing what you want to write for the, you know, the right reasons, not because you're chasing a trend or, you know, somebody else says, oh, you should do this. Staying true to yourself, like you said, and uh, and definitely being patient. That's excellent advice. Bev, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really enjoyed our conversation and uh, congrats again on your book launch and good luck on your next new work. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you and thank you for the opportunity.
That wraps up this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to those who have left wonderful reviews on the podcast, both on Apple and Spotify, and just by sharing your thoughts on Twitter. I am so grateful for all of my listeners, and I'm happy to help bring you information and tips and interviews that can inspire and provide insights. Until next episode, keep being badass. Badass.